So I was on my uh, second half cup of coffee this morning, and in walks Johnny Walleen. He's like, here, try this. <laughs> Which probably you should be afraid of when Johnny Walleen hands you a cup of something and says, here, try this. At any rate, it came from Stonehouse, and it's a cold-pressed nitro-infused, and it is like, it is like 110 octane. It is like full on. It is like a Russian imperial stout. It is like, are you a Misty? M-S-T-Y, M-S-T-Y. Mystery Science Theater 3000. It premiered in 1988 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. First run on public television. It would run 10 years, 197 episodes, one film for the silver screen. For those of you that know Mystery Science Theater 3000, you know the premise. In the not-too-distant future, a gentleman by the name of Joel Robinson, um, Joel Robinson. That would be different than Jay Robinson, but Joel Robinson, who is a purveyor of the custodial arts, okay? He is kidnapped, okay? He is kidnapped by an evil doctor. And the evil doctor sends him into outer space because the evil doctor's desire is to take over the world through the use of film. So what Joel is forced to endure is the worst B-grade movies in the history of United States world movie-making production capability. He traps Joel, sends him to the space station to watch bad movies because the worst B-rated movie that Joel watched that drives him insane, the doctor will then use to inflict on the rest of society, causing mass insanity and enabling the good doctor to rule the world. <laughs> I love this stuff. So Joel, to combat the evil plot of the doctor, invents several robots, okay? The robots' names are Gypsy, Crow T Robot, you know who I'm talking about, those of you who know what I'm talking about, and Servo. And what happens is the four of them watch the movies together, and the incessant heckling of the movies is just absolutely delightful. I mean, it is witty dialogue, it is intrigue, it is just, and then there's these little skits in between movie clips that are just, you really... It's not exactly hard-hitting. <laughs> it could happen, though. I mean, there's some pretty bad movies out there. Anyway, we'll get back to that in a little bit. 1033, verse 1, chapter 10, and uh, book of Revelation. It's kind of a cool book. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire, he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But, in, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, 
just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This last week, okay, I'm coming north on 371, and it was relatively, I think it was early in the morning. Can't remember what I was doing. Must have had some, at any rate, okay, so it's not like super early in the morning, okay, but it's earlier in the day. And, and I pull up, and alongside of me pulls this dude, okay, and he's on a Harley, and it's not one of the pretty new Harleys, okay? Some of you are recently to the Harley scene, and you have really pretty shiny new Harleys, okay? They look absolutely immaculate. Okay, this was not one of those. This was an old shovel head. It was just everything that a Harley should be, gobs of oil dropping out of the crankcase, okay? And this dude, okay, this dude that was sitting on it, okay? He had a black leather. It was a, it was a, he had the rocker panel on the top and the bottom, and he was club patches and leather, and it was just, I mean, he was full on. There wasn't a helmet to be seen. Just pulls away, dripping oil, smoke, gas coming. Okay, that's the kind of angel we're dealing with. We got ourselves a full on Harley riding angel. That wasn't a dude you'd want to mess with. He would beat up every one of us that's in this room. At the same time. <laughs> the imagery, though, is beautiful. Wrapped in a cloud, doesn't drip oil. Rainbows, face shining like the sun. And this little scroll. One foot is on dry land, one is on the water. It's not so much he's standing at, on a beach, okay? It's not a, an image of, oh, I'm standing in the water and standing on the sand. It's not that so much as a big, huge, Harley-riding angel with one foot resting on the waters and one foot resting on land. It's not at the beach. It's an overarching statement of how grand and glorious and amazing and intimidating this vision would be. It's a big view. Now, Beale argues for this being a Christ figure, i.e. Jesus Christ himself, and he puts pretty good support, but I don't know. It's one of those times where I kind of disagree a little bit with Beale. His argument for is that there's appearance to, similar to other verses in Revelation, uh, holding a book, ruling over all the work, okay? This notion of ruling the earth. Adam, the first Adam, was supposed to rule the earth. He failed in that. We're in that line. That's why we need to be redeemed. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, now ruling over the earth. If it is a Christ-like figure, if it is Christ himself, great. If it's not, I don't think we lose anything by saying it is, as the text says, a mighty angel. Seven thunders sound. Seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals, seven thunders. John's about ready to get busy. And then he stopped, mid-quill stroke. Don't write seal this up. Now, if you're me, you want to be like, okay, what's in the seven thunders? Between 4a and 4b, there's a lot of stuff that happens that we don't get to figure out, we don't get to know about. I, I want to know what the seven thunders are. Well, what are the seven thunders? Well, probably they're a lot like the seven seals, which are a lot like the seven trumpets, which are a lot like the seven bowls, but we're left with this bit of mystery which sometimes is how we approach God, right? 
with this sense of mystery. This text talks about the mystery of God. And again, we might ask, well, what is that? And we could scratch our heads about that. It could be any number of things. The mystery of God. Why? Why? Do God's people suffer? I mean, while Revelation is quick to point out and repeatedly affirms the fact that those who are in Christ, and I had a great email this last week. Someone said, hey, John, you guys talk about being in Christ. What does that mean? To be in Christ means that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It means that you have said yes to Jesus Christ. You've said, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I aspire to make you the Lord of my life. Okay? I want to know that my sins are forgiven. And so I'm going to ask you, Jesus, to forgive my sins. And any past sins I ask for forgiveness for, and any future sins that I commit and become aware of, or even the ones that I'm not aware of, I will ask for forgiveness of those at the appropriate time. To be in Christ means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that starts, a point in time that starts when we say yes to Jesus and moves forward into time, forward into eternity. Revelation affirms that those who are in Christ, who are following Jesus Christ, do not have to fear spiritual separation from God. But Revelation also affirms that the people of God will suffer. You will suffer. I will suffer. One of the mysteries might be, why do God's people suffer? Another mystery might be, why don't bad people get punished? Another mystery might be, why do we have to wait for God's people to experience relief? And connected to that, why do we have to wait for the bad people to be judged? The mystery of God, the way of God. Now, sometimes the answers to the mystery of God are easily attainable, okay? We can understand enough of who God is, but there are parts of God that we cannot know who God is. And in part, I think we have this reference to the seven thunders to say, okay, I, God, not me, God, but God speaking through John's hand is saying, I'm going to reveal myself to you enough so that you can figure this thing called life out and figure out where all of human history is going to. But I'm not going to tell you everything. Because A, you couldn't handle it, and B, you don't need to know. And for some of us, that's an unsatisfying answer. And for others of us, it's an absolute delight. Because the truth be told, I don't want to know everything. I used to be the kind of person that if I got the hint of a, a clue or the hint of, a, oh, what's going on over here? Or what's going on over here? Or what's going on? I would want to know. I would want to know exactly what's happening in as many different situations that I had awareness of. Now I would just soon not know more. There's some times where I'm just like, you know something, I don't need to know that. I can step back from that. I'm, I'm comfortable enough in my relationship with the God of the universe 
that I don't want to know everything. I don't need to know everything. The mystery of God, the way of God, the why of God, the reality that God is ultimately successful. The mystery of God, that some people just don't get it. And I can understand why some people don't get it. The mystery of God includes these images of servanthood. The mystery of God includes images of sacrifice. The mystery of God includes the last being first and the value and dignity of those whom the world says have no value. The mystery of God is the kid who's always picked last at kickball. He gets chosen first. The mystery of God includes a place for the widow and the orphan and the alien being no longer discarded as worthless. To be sure, the mystery of God doesn't make great political headlines. But there's not a man-made political system in the world that will save your soul. The mystery of God will. The mystery of God that includes a plan to send his son so that we might be in relationship with him. The text goes on, verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, oh, there's one other thing that I just want to do here quick, okay? Because we, we get offended when people do stuff, and, 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 and I think, in part, we get offended by the wrong stuff in life. There's all sorts of stuff that we're getting offended about in the news today, and, and, so, and some of that's just, some of that's right, we should be offended. But here's the thing, in verse 6, the angel swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what it is, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And this idea of making an oath and using God's name as an oath, and this is a personal pet peeve of mine, because it's an area where I've cleaned up my language, and I would encourage anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ to likewise clean up their language. If we use God's name casually, if we use God's name as an exclamation point, if we use the name of Jesus Christ as something at the end of a sentence to either express disdain or scorn or frustration, could we just stop? Could we just stop? I'm not saying you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, could we not use God's name inappropriately? I've done it. Some of you have done it. Most of us have done it. And sometimes I think it's just a casual, we just frisbee it out. We don't even realize we've said it. Could, could we just clean up our language just a little bit? Just a tiny little bit? Because his name, well, I've said enough. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, this is crazy, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. Then why would I eat it? 
but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. This happened to me. Okay, yesterday, Will and I go and pick up an upright bass room up in Duluth, and there's this little place called Taste of Saigon. The food is amazing on the way down, but it's a little spicy. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. It's a lot spicy. And so it's the gift that keeps on giving, at least for a 24-hour cycle, if you get my idea. I was going to have this point be lower GI issues, but everyone on staff says, you can't do that. You can't do that on a Sunday morning. And so I included the words bad belly. Take it, eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. In was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, it made my, it, eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. A sweet message, but a hard message. Hints of Jeremiah 15 here, yeah. If you've ever had to deliver a message that was consistent with the organization, but not an easy message to deliver, then you understand what John is talking about here. The sweetness is the word of God. The reality that there is a way for people to be in right relationship with God. It is the mystery of God. The bitterness is the understanding that the word of God will be rejected by some. The mystery of why some accept and why others reject. And the pain of realizing that for those who don't accept the word of God, the resulting outcome is death. It's separation from God. It's judgment. It's, a, it's an eternity of anguish in which one replays, I think, in my brain any chance, anyway, every time a chance was given to come to faith and subsequently rejected. See, often what happens, especially in our perspective, is when there's a good guy and a bad guy and the bad guy loses, the good guys are like, woohoo, the bad guy lost. We see that in our sporting contests, okay? We see that in our business arrangements. We see this, and it's this game of in which the good guys win, woohoo, the good guys won, bad guys lost, they deserve to lose. But not for John. And I would even, even submit to you, not for a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no vitriol here. There is no joy. There is a deep and profound gut-aching sadness and pain over the people who do not come to faith for the follower of Jesus Christ. Let me put it stronger. If our hearts are not broken for those who do not know Christ, perhaps we ought to question our commitment to the kingdom. If our hearts do not ache, if our bellies are not just turning inside, because there are people that we know, friends that we know, family that we know, who have rejected God, I think something's wrong. It's a challenge, right? Because especially when it's really, really close, we continue to pray for the family member. We continue to pray for the close friend. We continue to pray for the individual. And there is great pain and anguish. And I'm not even saying the responsibility is ours for someone else coming to faith. It's not. But for John, and I think for us, there ought to be this sense of 
of the reality that happens because people will reject God. The outcome is verse 11. And I was told, John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The book of Revelation, John is told to write and include and and disseminate the contents of the book of Revelation for all of the ages to, to read, to have access to. Again, this is affirmed. There is work to be done. John is told, do the work, be a prophet. What does a prophet do? Well, in the most simplest terms, a prophet tells about God. A prophet tells about the realities of following God and the pain of not following God. A prophet tells of God's work. He encourages, she encourages, she challenges. A prophet invites repentance and offers forgiveness. Are we Old Testament prophets? Probably not because that was thousands of years ago. But can we take this verse and apply it to our lives and be a person who speaks of God to the world around us? Yes, without question. And to that end, there is no mystery about this, right? This is not rocket science, and this is not some sort of theatrical presentation. This is life. This is eternity. This is all the marbles on the line. And so until the day comes, until that seventh trumpet sounds, until Jesus Christ returns, we at Timberwood Church will do what we've been invited to do. We will tell about the mystery of God. We will be the local church. We will plant churches. We will live in our sphere of influences. And we will use our resources consistent with the Spirit's leading. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today. Enable us who are followers of you Enable us who are in Christ to take seriously the command of verse 11. To be a prophet, to be a person who tells their sphere of influence about the mystery of God. Father, give us one name through the power of your Spirit that we should speak to this week about the mystery of God. Likewise, Father, if we are not in Christ today, if we do not know Jesus as our Savior, allow today to be the day that we begin by simply crying out to you, Father, I want your Son as my Savior. that simple statement of faith starts a relationship.